Often at this time of year, the weather can become pretty wild, storms, cold, wet. We might look on this as another challenge in our practice. And if we can continue to practice through the wild weather, then that's the development of Kanti Barami, more patience and resilience in our practice. If we can keep up our own commitment to our schedule of meditation and we follow the Vinaya and follow the routine in the monastery, whatever the weather's like, then that's a sign that we know how to train ourselves. It's what we're looking for in the practice if we really want to improve and cultivate the Eightfold Noble Path. Wouldn't be much of a path if it was only doable on warm sunny days. We're learning to train this mind, body, speech and mind in all conditions. So Kanti Barami, patience, endurance is always something to be developed. You gain from that. Every time you consciously are patient with a difficult condition, you gain something. Learning how to keep the Vinaya under difficult conditions and circumstances, you gain. When you're ill, or when the weather is bad, or in the face of problems in the world, or difficult people and so on, the more we can uphold our way of practice, the more we gain. Very much at the bedrock, or the foundation of our practice is sila. We hear it so often, we're used to it. <coughs> sila samadhi panya. But it's something we often overlook because in the texts, sila is often very formulaic and we remember the precepts of Vinaya training rule an explanation. There's not a lot to the explanation often. So our mind often moves on. I know that. So we move on to something new. What's next? <coughs> but in terms of practice, the sila is something we're constantly cultivating with patience, with effort, with right view, 
It's linked to all the other factors of the path. It's something we can feel good about, say on a cold, wet, windy day. You can say at least I have practiced Divinaya today, <coughs> practiced right livelihood today. I haven't deliberately hurt anybody or any living creature or haven't told a lie kept celibacy, and so on. <coughs> Even in the worst circumstances, if you can reflect like that, it can bring some warmth into your mind. Because this is Barami, keeping the Vinaya, keeping the Sila, practicing it. Even if internally your mind is not yet peaceful, you don't feel you've attained much samadhi or insight. You are keeping the sila. You're not generating the causes for remorse or regret. And you can feel a wholesome pride at what you've done for the day. And we're a blessing to the world by keeping the Bhikkhu Vinaya living in this way, we automatically are inspiring other people, giving them some strength in their practice, giving them the opportunity to make merit, supporting us. Our job is to use that support wisely, to be careful, to reflect wisely, as we use the requisites and how we obtain our requisites. But we are providing others with a chance to make good karma as well. Simply by being in the robes, keeping the Vinaya, we're a blessing to the world. This is something you appreciate the longer you are in the robes. You appreciate the value of having spiritual practitioners in the world because there's so few of them in the world. So we're practicing this pathway <clears throat> moves from starting point of dukkha, avicca, delusion, lack of knowing, lack of knowledge, towards the end of dukkha and wicca, knowledge, understanding. Let's so say from dark to light. The arising of samaditi in the mind through listening to the Dhamma from wise teachers and then reflecting on it, internalizing, it brightens the mind. In the way of ignorance darkens the mind, creates more of a habit of craving and attachment that leads to more darkness. It's a bit like if you've ever been walking meditation at dawn in the forest, you walk back and forth 
there'll always be one end of your Chongkrong path that's lighter because it's closer to where the direction of the sun that is arising and the light comes from that. The other direction, the other end of your Chongkrong path, walking path, will be dark away from where the sun is. As you walk, you'll notice it's much easier to walk towards the light. If you have no other electric lights or candles, you can use just the light of the sun arising, gradually filtering in into your eyesight, into the forest. You walk towards it, it's easy. You can feel confident because you can see what's ahead. When you turn around, you're walking back towards darkness and you walk more slowly. You're less confident. And <clears throat> if it's if the sun hasn't got up yet, then you know, the darkness can really envelop you and you can, for a moment, you're not sure where you are, whether you're going to walk off the path. It's difficult. It's like you get bogged down in the darkness. Then you turn around and there's a bit of light at the other end. It's easy just to walk back towards it. And the path is like that. You know, as you establish samaditi, it's like establishing the light. Even if you feel you have lots of attachments, lots of greed and anger, and lots of doubts and worries and confusion, once the light is established, there's some way of dealing with the internal negativity and mental defilements. Then you've got a you've got a spark of light that you can move towards, and you can see the difference when you just follow mental defilements. You give up the practice. You go towards more ignorance, more craving, more attachment. It's going towards darkness. And you get bogged down in it, stuck in it, confused by it, deluded by it, and less and less find a way, can you see a way out from it, because it's dark, darkness. The practice is like this. We're moving towards the light, and it actually gets easier the more you do it, the further you go down the pathway. The alternative is to go back towards the dark, more confusion, more dukkha. And a moment of brightness or lightness can literally just be a moment of bringing your attention back to the present moment, establishing mindfulness when you have a negative or confused state of mind or a restless, agitated state of mind. Just establishing mindfulness is like one bright moment that can then highlight what you have to do, where you have to go, even if you can't yet sustain it in your practice. The Buddha used to talk about how the world is dark. They use it almost like as a synonym, the world and darkness. It's the same sort of thing, meaning the world and the attachments to the world that human beings have. It's darkness. It doesn't lead to the radiant peace of mind that comes with the clarity that you gain from practicing this path. It's darkness. 
Rinpoche used to say, you know, the more the world develops, the darker it becomes. On the surface, it seems brighter, more illuminated by technology and electricity and all the modern conveniences. But people's hearts and minds seem to get darker with all this technology because they become more attached to convenience and <clears throat> more confused and caught up in it more addicted and obsessed with it so their hearts become darker but the way of the Eightfold Noble Path is going towards the light the brightness out of the world out of the darkness of attachment to the world towards the illuminating qualities of the Dhamma and this is why it's at first hard because we're going against the stream of the world which is darkness we're sort of floundering around just like when the, you're in the forest without a flashlight but once you do get more sparks of light or rays of light come in then you've got somewhere a direction to follow and that's the Dhamma arising outside first and then internally through our own efforts at training this heart and this mind and where we get immediate success is sila. It takes time to develop samadhi and, and wisdom, the sort of the wisdom that cuts off mental defilements. But sila is something you can practice every day. But the aim of the sila as, as a path factor, you're, you're aiming to internalize the qualities of, say, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And we're not doing it as a favor to anybody or because of some superior force commanding us to do. We take on the Eightfold Noble Path voluntarily as a way of training this human mind to give up the causes of suffering. Every day we're cultivating right action. All the Vinaya training is giving us just an elaboration, just giving us more details, more explanations of the simple practice of right action, which summarized as you know, harmlessness, non-aggression, non-violence, non, not taking the life of a living being deliberately, not taking that which is not given, not stealing, you're refraining from that, the intention to refrain from stealing, the intention to refrain from sexual misconduct. So here we're not just following externally these rules, although that's how it begins, and that's good in itself. We're training the mind to give up the intention to kill or harm, the intention to steal, the intention to commit an act of sexual misconduct so that eventually it doesn't arise anymore, it's gone, it's been abandoned completely. We move from the outward to the inward in the practice of right action. So for the Sotapanna, yeah, the stream winner, they don't think of killing, it just doesn't arise, it's not an option anymore, they don't think like that. They may understand how they used to think like that or how other people 
think like that and out of compassion they can sympathize with the emotion of anger or hatred or the greed that might prompt stealing or sexual misconduct but they themselves have abandoned it it's gone they have other qualities to deal with those situations that might normally prompt anger to lead them to harm, physically harm or verbally harm someone or to steal, to commit an act of sexual misconduct. And they have the mindfulness, the insight to know that that way, that path is going back towards the darkness of the world. And the path of abstinence and restraint is going towards the light. They just know that intuitively. There's no more doubt or fluffing around in the mind, no more fuzziness. It's just not an option. I'd say even if one doesn't feel one's attained the noble path, anyone can attain that living in the Buddhist monastic form, training in this form. It's, and it's quite straightforward to just keep abandoning the intention to physically, verbally harm another, to steal or to commit acts of sexual misconduct if one is willing to train, patient enough, determined enough, sincere enough. Anyone can do that. It's not beyond a human being's ability. And it brings both inner peace coming from lack of regret, the happiness of just not bothering anybody else, causing harm or trouble, dissatisfaction to others, not deliberately anyway, brings internal happiness, no regret, brings a great sense of harmony with other beings, not bothering anyone, causing trouble for anyone, and brings up great sensitivity to others, so one develops kindness and compassion at the very same time as one gives up wrong action. One gives safety and security to others by practicing right, right action. And this is something that the world desperately needs. As we know, so much of the suffering in the world is based on people failing to restrain themselves, harm each other violently, stealing, taking from each other through whatever means, or sexually harassing or hurting each other through sexual behavior. Monks are not immune from this. We know some monks get caught up in the, the greed for um, money, wealth, misuse the robes for that. Some get use their position to abuse uh, females, acts of sexual misconduct, some may even become violent. It's possible, because everybody starts out this practice just as an unenlightened, untrained human being. But very quickly you should be able to see the suffering of all that and shy away from that kind of behavior. So what arises as we practice right action, right speech, is hiriotapa. It's just a natural development as one commits to keeping the Vinaya, developing the Eightfold Path, the qualities of Hiriyotapa, the guardians of the world, develop. 
they become more refined, more subtle, and more intuitive. So the mind just shrinks away from the even the thought of killing or stealing. Or if one sees or interacts with a female, it just shies away from the thought of any sexual interaction or taking that person as a partner, whether they have a partner or not. It doesn't matter. The mind just shrinks away from that because the unwholesome nature of the thought is seen clearly. Here you ought to pray it's like that. You shrink away from unwholesome ways of body, speech, and then mind. And even though they may continue to come up over and over again, because we've all got plenty of accumulated karma, you're learning to treat every unwholesome mind state correctly with right view and then right action, right speech, right intention, right effort, right livelihood. So one shrinks away from indulging, holding on to the kilesis in the form of thoughts that might lead you to hurt others, take advantage of others, exploit others. As long as you've got that established, even if you find you're having many personal struggles with sexual desire or anger, ill will, hatred, greed, for material things, fame and fortune. As long as you're, you've got right view and you're treating them correctly when they arise in the mind, then you're on the path. And it's a good place to be. Because you're going towards the light and it gets easier the more you do it. The opposite is to indulge those intentions, wrong intentions, unwholesome intentions. And things get worse. One loses self-esteem, self-confidence. One becomes more agitated. Meditation becomes impossible if we don't keep the precepts. In Thailand they used to compare Hiriotapa, having well-established Hiriotapa is like having a good roof, say on a day like today with all the stormy weather and lots of heavy rain or even hail, as so long as your roof is still firm, you're safe inside your kuti. As soon as you've got a hole in your roof, problems. So when you lose your hiriotapa, it's like having a hole come in your roof. The water starts to come in. That's fair enough. Sometimes we'll lose our hiriotapa. Then what do you do? You have to quickly fill out that hole, replace a tile, get the sealant, whatever is needed to block the hole. What happens if you don't block the hole? Well, the water keeps coming in. It damages other parts of the kuti. The hole gets bigger over time. Furnishings and whatever gets damaged and the whole kuti may become unlivable. If we don't block up these holes of hiriotapa, then our spiritual practice becomes untenable, undoable. We have to see the value of re-establishing right intention, right action, right speech over and over again, right livelihood, until the holes are blocked, until it's firm and steady. Then we have a very stable, pleasant place to live, even on a in a raging storm. As long as your roof is working, you're safe, you're dry underneath.
sometimes monks complain of the lack of explanation for right livelihood in the path. You know, when we chant the Eightfold Noble Path, the monks practices right livelihood by practicing right livelihood. There's not a lot to it, the explanation. If you sift through the suttas and the Vinaya, well, you get a little bit more, say, for lay people, the various ways of earning money that are inappropriate. As a monk, well, if we set ourselves up as astrologers, palm readers, start selling holy water and medallions and things like that, well, wrong livelihood. But if you consider it more deeply, right livelihood is the whole Vinaya and the whole practice. You're just willing to take on the Vinaya, uphold it as a monk. You're willing to train your mind in the Eightfold Path to abandon the unwholesome and to cultivate the wholesome. And that's right livelihood. That's what people come and expect when they offer food to you in the morning, wherever you are, whether you're in on Tudong or you're in the monastery, it doesn't change, does it? They put food in your bowl, expecting you to keep the Vinaya and be practicing. They're not expecting you to be perfect, but they expect you to be practicing what the Buddha taught, because you're dressed as a Buddhist monk. That's right livelihood. You take on right livelihood. You take on the Vinaya. And how we deal with our imperfections and our kilesas, well, every two weeks we reveal our offenses to other bhikkhus, or even more often than that, if there's a specific thing like you, you've uh, been without your robes at dawn, you have to give up a robe and re redetermine it and, commit and uh, confess an offense, or if there's a specific thing you've done wrong, it might be more than every two weeks. But at the very minimum, every two weeks, we come together and we reveal our offenses. And that's an interesting practice. You, know, you don't really find that going on anywhere else in the world. You might see it, say, two very close friends who trust each other and know each other well, maybe for many years. They might be, they might feel confident enough to reveal some of their personal secrets about their own behavior, particularly their negative behavior to a close friend. But in the world, it's pretty rare, isn't it? In the monastery, we're doing it every two weeks. We trust our fellow bhikkhus that we can reveal or confess an offense to them, some wrongdoing, whether it was intentional or unintentional. We do this practice to re-establish our new intention, fresh intention to develop the path, keep the Vinaya. And the responsibility of the one re receiving the confession who's hearing the, the other monk uh, open up, showing, telling what's wrong, what went wrong, is out of sympathy, compassion and wisdom to listen, to advise that bhikkhu correctly and do a service to him. You know, we don't reveal our offenses just so we can get back at each other. You know, the modern corporate culture is like that, isn't it? You know, nobody wants to admit a fault because once you take responsibility you might not get promoted or, not, or might lose your job or have problems in the office culture. But a monastery is not like that, isn't it? This isn't the office culture. This is not the corporate culture. This is the Buddha's culture. So we don't use our 
observations or knowledge about another person's faults to bear down on them, insult them, or get back at them in some kind of childish way. That's not the way we practice in a monastery, is it? We're practicing to ennoble our minds, developing the noble path. We're not three-year-olds who just sort of pick on each other's faults. We're Buddhist monks who have developed patience, endurance, and are committed to training this mind. And we're encouraging that in everyone around us. So it's one of the most beautiful things in the world is when you see Buddhist monks practicing properly, in harmony, and every two weeks they reveal their offenses to each other so that they can move on and grow. Because most of the world is not growing. Most of the world is trapped in this kind of culture of competing and fighting with each other. And you get a job and you've always got someone behind your back attacking you. Sometimes to your face, sometimes behind your back. That's the way of people in darkness in the world. And the way of people in a monastery is the way of brightness. So we forgive. We might admonish each other because that is part of the practice and we have to accept that. But we forgive, we encourage, we support. And you end up with something very beautiful. And that's Lumpur Cha's teaching on the, uh, the millipede, all those hundreds of legs moving together. The millipede just glides very gracefully over the surface of the rock or the concrete path. And we see it here every day. When the rain stops, the millipedes come out. And it looks almost like they're just hovering because they're so graceful, all those legs moving together. Numpocha said, you know, when monks are practicing properly together, that's what it's like. There's a harmony. They're not getting at each other through comments, wrong speech, divisive speech, insults, negativity. And they practice patience, kindness, compassion. They're not getting each other through their actions. You know, we support each other. The jobs we do, the tasks we do, we help each other out when there's a need. That's the way of the monastic training. That's the way Buddhist monks train. That's why you have to be careful when you go off on your own too much. You know, seclusion and retreat, personal retreats have a place, but if we never learn to live in harmony with others, you go off on your own and generally things don't go so well. Your mind becomes too biased, too self-indulgent, maybe to take yourself too, too seriously. You know, and you often see monks really don't do very well if they're on their own too much. And part of our training is to learn to live and cooperate with compassion and wisdom with others. And this is, again, it's another gift or a blessing we give back to the world. A whole group of monks living together, practicing right action, right speech, right livelihood, is a very powerful force for the world. It draws the good out of the people that come in contact with them. They feel good to meet such monks. They're willing to support them with arms and requisites, they're willing to listen to their instruction. So it gets easier to train laity when you're practicing the Eightfold Path.
We're not just practicing for others, though. We're also practicing for our own liberation, which in turn helps others. You know, those parts of the Eightfold Path that people usually focus on first, you know, right mindfulness, right samadhi, the ones we like to debate about. If you don't practice the other aspects of the path and develop them, well, the right mindfulness, the right samadhi doesn't really happen. The Buddha emphasized over and over again, <coughs> mindfulness is purified by sila. Samadhi is purified by sila. The Eightfold Path is purified by cultivating sila. There's no way around it. We love to jump to the top in terms of practice. We like to talk about the high Dhamma. Lumpur Park likes to joke about some of the Western monks who go and see him. He talk high Dhamma because we've read a lot and know a lot, but the mind is still very coarse. Lumpur Cha used to have a simile for it. He used to say Western monks are like the vulture. And they fly high, but what do they eat? And they come down and feed on corpses. We're like that. We've got used to accumulating knowledge. It makes us feel good, boosts our ego. And we can debate and talk about the refined aspects of the Dhamma, and it's good, it's useful. But then we get too attached, and we forget to see where we're not keeping the sila, and the more ordinary kind of defilements coming out in our, through our mouths and through our actions, we're not picking up because we're stuck up in the head. The beautiful practice is beautiful in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So we need both sila and samadhi and panya. And in the end it's one mind, isn't it, that we're training. It's not many minds, even though on paper we put all of these different parts of the path out and discuss them. Still just the one mind that does the practice. We say there's sila over here, right action, Right livelihood is over here, and then right effort, right mindfulness over there, and right view over there. It's all the one mind, isn't it? This is why they often use very simple analogies to make it clear. The mind is bright, or the mind is dark. Whether you know a lot or you know a little, is your mind bright or is it dark? If it's dark, then you establish sila, Right mindfulness, right samadhi, reflect, and then it brightens up again. Just like the weather. One moment it's raining and clouding, the next moment the sun comes out. It's our job to do that for our own liberation, for our own benefit. The alternative is to go back towards the darkness. Just stick with the the confusion and the the mental suffering that comes from attachment. One moment of mindfulness, right? Right mindfulness is a moment of brightness. One thought, one well-trained thought, just directing your mind to recollect something skillful, wholesome, is already a moment of brightness. Vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekakata, the factors of samadhi, begins with vitaka, putting mindfulness on a wholesome object. 
So if you're feeling miserable or in doubt or struggling in one way or another or annoyed with other people, take the time just to practice vitaka. Reflect on what's good. What's good in your practice, what's good in the monastery, what's good in the world around you, because there's still plenty that is good. And you do that for a few moments, already the mind calms down and brightens up a little bit. Vijara is keeping the mind with that wholesome object. Let it reverberate around your mind. Letting your mind bathe in it. You can always find some good in what you're doing, even when you're going through a difficult patch. You reflect on the goodness of keeping the Vinaya, that wholesome intention to practice, to train, to let go of defilement. Very, very powerful good karma. Every time you bring your mind to recollect that, it brightens. Tonight is a night of uh, all night meditation. It's observance night, observance day. Even if you find it hard and you're sleepy, sitting, falling asleep, remember the Buddha's words. He's more impressed with a monk who sits in the forest, even if he's just nodding away, struggling with sleepiness. And, a monk who's in town looking good appears to be very composed and looking good, but is, is sitting in the town. This is where we make real barami, all those times where we put effort into the sitting, the walking, the restraint, the mindfulness. That's where you build your barami, that's where you cultivate the path. So tonight is a, a night we'll dedicate to that. I'll leave you with these reflections for your benefit. <laughs>